Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. What is the relationship between canned whipped cream and surgery? If you know the answer to that question, you can give us a call at 514-790-0800, and you can always text us at 514-800. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. I'm a professor of chemistry, and uh, it is my contention that chemistry is the science that ties all the other sciences together, because if you have a good feel for what molecules are all about, what they can and cannot do, you have a pretty good idea of what can and cannot happen. Our mandate really is to separate sense from nonsense in the world of science. We try to do that for you every Sunday afternoon here, and of course by email, by my columns in the paper, my colleagues' uh, comments on in the newspaper and in various public lectures. And uh, we hope that we are having some kind of an impact on uh, making people... Uh, aware of what is happening in science and uh, urging them to think in a critical fashion. Okay, well, uh, let me just repeat the question. What is the relationship between canned whipped cream and surgery? But before we get to your answers about that, uh, let's talk a little bit about tarantulas. Well, undoubtedly being bitten by one of these creatures is not a memorable experience. Oh, well, actually, it may be memorable, but it's not pleasant. While it may cause some pain, it isn't going to cause the victim to go into some sort of dancing frenzy, unless the victim believes that should be the effect. And that is just what happened in episodes of tarantism that broke out on a number of occasions between the 11th and 18th centuries in the province of Toronto in southern Italy. People who believed that they had been bitten by a type of spider, also named after Toronto, that is, of course, tarantula, they began to dance hysterically until they were, quote, cured by a certain type of music. And that music had an upbeat tempo and usually featured a tambourine. The most curious aspect of tarantism is that there's no evidence the folks affected had actually been bitten. And of course, even if they had, the result would not have been a frantic dance, and even if it were, it would not be cured by music. Tarantism was actually an example of what has been called mass psychogenic illness. Uh, When does this happen? Well, it happens when large groups of people become sick because they believe that something has happened to make them sick, even though there's no actual causative agent. It is a stunning example how the mind can rule the body. The tarantella is an Italian folk dance still performed today, and its origins trace back to the Middle Ages and this notion of tarantism. The Middle Ages also featured other examples of mass psychogenic illness, the most famous one being the Dancing Plague of 1518 that broke out in what is now the French city of Strasbourg. Those days it was part of the Holy Roman Empire. And for some unknown reason, a single woman who has been referred to in historical accounts as Frau Trophea began to dance fervently in the street. Soon she was joined by about 400 others who danced for days and days without rest, finally collapsing from exhaustion. According to some reports, some even died. One theory is that the bizarre behavior 
was caused by eating grains contaminated by the ergo fungus. And that fungus produces a psychoactive compound called ergotamine. But this is unlikely since it supposes that all those involved ate contaminated grains and they would all react the same way. It is far more likely that this was mass psychogenic illness induced by the stress of what in those days was a pretty miserable life. The uh, notion of ergotism has also been proposed as an explanation for the Salem witch trials of 1692, in which young girls accused a number of people, mostly women in their 20s, of being witches. The argument is that due to their small body weight, the girls were more likely to become hysterical from consuming contaminated grains, and apparently the climactic conditions the summer before in New England were such uh, that there was a lot of, of, uh, of rain, and that's conducive to the growth of uh, the ergo fungus. Again, it is far more likely that this was a case of mass hysteria among the girls who contorted themselves strangely and uttered bizarre sounds, and they believed that they had been bewitched. Stories about witches were common at the time in a community riddled with superstitious beliefs. More recently, the June bug epidemic, a classic case of hysterical contagion, occurred in 1962 in an American textile factory with some 60 employees being afflicted with symptoms that ranged from numbness, dizziness, and nausea to vomiting after claiming that they had been bitten by a bug. No evidence was found of any bug bite, and certainly none that could cause any such symptoms, and most of the cases occurred within two days of sensationalized media reports about bug bites at the factory. Interviews with the victims revealed that they had highly stressed lives, and the associated anxiety was fertile ground for mass hysteria. And then in 1998... A high school teacher in the U.S. noted a gasoline-like smell in her classroom and told the students that she was experiencing a headache and was feeling nauseous, dizzy, and short of breath. Well, pretty soon, a number of students in the classroom began to experience similar symptoms. As the classroom was being evacuated, a number of other students and staff began to complain of symptoms with eventually a hundred of them going either voluntarily or being taken to emergency reporting rooms, emergency rooms, and they reported symptoms that they believed were due to exposure to some toxin at the school. There was an extensive investigation by numerous government agencies, and there were blood samples taken from the victims, air samples taken in the school and around the school, water samples, soil samples around the school, and... Uh, Nothing turned up. No toxins that could explain the symptoms were found, and authorities concluded that this was a case of mass psychogenic illness. Another example of this phenomenon may be a condition now being called idiopathic environmental intolerance attributed to electromagnetic fields. We used to call it the electrical hypersensitivity syndrome. Victims claim they experienced an assortment of headaches, fatigue, nausea, vertigo, difficulty concentrating, palpitations, tingling sensations, confusion, depression, and indigestion that they attribute to electromagnetic radiation from cell phones, Wi-Fi routers, and other electrical equipments. 
Since these people are undoubtedly suffering, there's certainly impetus to get to the bottom of the problem. There have now been some 46 trials in which sufferers were asked to determine if they were being exposed to real or sham electromagnetic fields in a blinded fashion. Despite the conviction of those afflicted, these trials have been unable to replicate the claim of electromagnetic sensitivity under controlled conditions. The researchers who analyzed all the available studies concluded that the most likely explanation for the symptoms was the nocebo effect, in which negative expectations cause symptoms even when there is no physiological reason for the symptoms. The term nocebo comes from the Latin for I shall harm and is the evil cousin of the placebo effect, deriving from the Latin for I shall please. And that also explains why about 20% of patients taking a sugar pill in controlled trials of drugs report side effects. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, let's uh, hit the lines for the answer to my question about the relationship between canned whipped cream and surgery. Let's go to Richard. Hi, Richard. Yes, hello, Dr. Joe. Hi. What's nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide, exactly. Do you know anything more about the story? About the story? About, well, I know that they use it not only for that, but also for drag racing, uh, motorsports, uh, gives a boost. Yeah, oh, that's true. Okay, sit back. I'll tell you a little bit more about it. Uh, nitrous oxide uh, was uh, first introduced by Humphrey Davy, a brilliant uh, English chemist, uh, in the early 1800s. Uh, and he made it from heating uh, ammonium nitrate. He noted that it had uh, a fascinating property. It made people giddy, so it came to be called laughing gas. And there were public demonstrations of laughing gas, uh, both in England and eventually in the United States as well. At one of these demonstrations in the U.S., uh, just outside of Boston, sort of a, a, a sideshow, there was a, a gentleman who had a little stage, and he would call for volunteers from the audience who would come up, inhale some nitrous oxide, and then they would cavort around, much to the delight of the onlookers. Well, one of these onlookers was a dentist by the name of Horace Wells, and he made an interesting observation. One of the people prancing around on the stage, fell off the stage and gashed his leg. But he climbed right back up again and continued to dance, oblivious of what must have been a painful gash. While Wells was quick to capitalize on this, being a dentist, he knew that he was dealing with pain all the time. I mean, in those days, they would extract teeth. Uh, they didn't know much about filling teeth, so they would just extract teeth. And you can imagine what that was like without any anesthesia. It was like pulling teeth. Anyway, he thought that uh, this uh, stuff that was being exhibited could be useful. So after the performance, he went backstage and he bought a pig bladder full of this gas from the showman. And this was before rubber balloons and pig bladders were the way that gases were stored. He took it back to his dental office and he did what any good dentist would do. He made his assistant sit down in the dental chair, made him inhale some nitrous oxide and proceeded to pull out a perfectly good tooth. And the guy basically remained unemotional, no pain. But he knew also that in science, experiments have to be replicated. So he became his own guinea pig. He inhaled some nitrous oxide and had his assistant pulled out one of his teeth, and he felt no pain. 
Now he knew that he was really onto something, and he introduced nitrous oxide into his dental practice. But he also knew that surgeons were looking for anesthetics. They had really nothing at the time. They would uh, make people drink alcohol or apply them with opiates, but you know, even if you're drunk or uh, you are uh, uh, put to sleep with a high dose of opiate, you tend to notice if someone is sawing your leg. So Horace Wells approached John Collins Warren, who was the chief surgeon, Massachusetts General at the time, and he said that he had something that could be useful. And of course, Collins uh, agreed to a demonstration because they had nothing. So the appointed day came, and Wells came with uh, one of his patients who needed a tooth extracted and um, made him sit down in a chair, and there were a number of doctors in the hospital gathered around for this demonstration. He made him inhale the nitrous oxide and then uh, took his pliers and started to tug at the guy's tooth. And then something surprising happened. The man started to scream and ran out of the uh, operating room. Well, unfortunately for Wells, what had happened was that he had not allowed enough time to pass between in inhalation of the gas and uh, trying to pull out the tooth. It had not taken effect. And this turned out to be a total fiasco. Uh, he felt disgraced, and in fact he was, in, in view of the doctors who had gathered, and um, uh, basically it ruined his life. A couple of years later, he actually ended up committing uh, a suicide. Uh, so that was the first use of nitrous oxide as an anesthetic, and it was a total failure, even though nitrous oxide actually does work, and it is still used today. Uh, dentists uh, still use it. Of course, they have to make sure that they allow enough time for the gas to be absorbed so that it will be uh, effective. So while Wells' experiment was a failure, it did stimulate another dentist who was an associate of his, uh, William Morton, to look around to see if there were any other substances that could also be used as an anesthetic because he knew nitrous oxide worked, but he also knew that he was unlikely to convince the doctors of another such demonstration. But if he had something, quote, new and improved, well, then maybe he would have a chance. And he consulted some experts, and he went back to Harvard University's alma mater to consult a, a chemistry professor by the name of Jackson, because he figured that if anyone knew anything about putting people to sleep, it was a chemistry professor. And Jackson told him about a solvent called ether that he had noted made people sleepy. And he suggested that uh, Morton try this, and Morton did. And it turned out to be very, very effective at putting people to sleep. And he told uh, John Collins Warren that now he had a more uh, efficacious uh, anesthetic agent than nitrous oxide. And uh, because uh, Warren still had uh, nothing, he agreed to another demonstration. And this time he provided his own patient, uh, who was a man who had a, a tumor on his neck, and uh, Morton was very careful this time to administer the ether to make sure that uh, the gentleman had inhaled enough of it. And once he had inhaled enough and he saw that it was indeed asleep, he motioned to the surgeon to go ahead. And uh, John Collins Warren picked up his scalpel, cut into the tumor, expecting the patient to jump up, but nothing happened. And he looked around at the assembled physicians, and he said, gentlemen, this time this is no humbug. 
And on that day in 1856, ether anesthesia was born, and within a couple of years, it was used, uh, it was used around the world. Uh, what is interesting about this story is that a couple of years before, a South Carolina physician by the name of Crawford Long had also experimented with ether and had found that it worked as an anesthetic, but he never published it. So he doesn't get uh, the credit that he could have gotten because he could have published this before Morton's work. So now you know a little bit about the history of, of uh, anesthesia, which is one of the most important developments in the history of medicine. And it all started with nitrous oxide, and nitrous oxide is still used today uh, as the propellant gas in whipped cream. And some people, of course, still take whipped cream and spray it into a plastic bag and try to inhale the nitrous oxide to get high from that. Not a good idea to put a plastic bag over your head. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back with my next question, which is, what is the most abundant organic chemical on Earth? What is the most abundant organic chemical on Earth? If you know that, 514-790-0800, or text us at 514-800. <laughs> Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. As I mentioned earlier, and I, I continually state, the uh, uh, basically the goal of our office is to separate sense from nonsense, and uh, it's very irritating when you hear a lot of nonsense. And a lot of that comes from the president of the U.S. Uh, you heard before on the uh, on the newscast his comments about the fires that are going on in California and his totally puerile remarks uh, about the governor of the state saying that he's responsible because he doesn't know what he's doing. Well, in fact, it is uh, the president who doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, there's nothing to do about these, you know, controlling these fires. It's not negligence on this part of California, and uh, especially given the fact that most of the areas where the fires are are, are federal uh, lands. So he should be taking the uh, the blame for this. Uh, and of course, climate change contributes to all of these uh, uh, events that we are seeing, uh, you know, climatic conditions. And he, of course, does not think that man. Uh, mankind has anything to do with climate change. Uh, he is wrong on that, just as he's wrong about just about everything else when it comes to scientific issues. Doesn't know what he's talking about when it comes to coal mining. Um, and uh, basically everything that I've ever heard him say about anything that has scientific uh, connections, uh, he he was wrong about. And he's wrong about what is happening in California with these uh, these fires. Uh, but uh, my listeners are not wrong when they text in the answer to my question, and several have te texted the correct answer about what is the most abundant organic chemical on Earth, and that is, of course, cellulose. Cellulose is the basic building block of all plants, and whether you're talking about grass or trees, uh, basically they are made of cellulose, plus, of course, hundreds of other compounds, but cellulose is the most dominant one. That question having been answered, I will throw another one out. What mammal lives the longest? What mammal has the longest life span? You can text your answers to 514-800 or call us at 514-790-0800. And that is exactly the number that Ron called. Question. Let's go to Ron. Hi, Ron. Hi, Dr. Joe. Uh, I guess the second most abundant uh, 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 material would be uh, uh, Walmart bags, but that's another topic. Would be what? 
would, would, would be Walmart bags. Bags. Yeah, right, plastic bags. <laughs> okay, I, I wanted to ask you, how long does tooth enamel have to be exposed to sugar before it starts uh, breaking down? Well, good question. Well, it's, it isn't exactly sugar that causes the breakdown. It's bacterial output of acids that cause the breakdown. But these bacteria proliferate in the presence of sugar. There's food. So that's the connection. Sugar is the food for bacteria that normally live on our teeth, and they generate acids, and that causes the breakdown. Well, how long? This is, you know, it, it's not an easy question to answer. I think the contact time when you're drinking a sugar drink, the contact time is probably not very long. So that's not as big an issue as sucking on sugar candies, where the sugar is, you know, uh, in your mouth for a long time. So I, I can't give you a specific answer. I don't think anyone can. Uh, but I think the best advice is to have as little sugar stay in your mouth, uh, you know, for a long time as possible. And uh, I'm, I'm of course, not a fan of sugary soft drinks at all, as you know. Uh, but I think that there are far better reasons to stay away from them than the dental uh, hygiene issue. But that is still an important issue. So sucking on sugary candies, uh, you know, eating a lot of sugary foods, uh, drinking sugar-sweetened beverages all contribute to the bacteria on your teeth proliferating because they just love to dance in the vicinity of sugar. You would brush your teeth uh, immediately after uh, drinking sugar or eating sugary candies. Would that minimize the effect? I think so, and I think that that's you know something that we sh should be doing all the time is mm -hmm. brushing our teeth after meals, mm -hmm. for sure. So it's not just sugar that can cause bacteria. It's a, a variety of things, but, but you're saying sugar... Sugar is a food. It's, sugar is a food for bacteria, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and it's, it is bacteria's favorite food, would you say? I would say it's bacteria's favorite food, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, okay. Thank you for, thank All you right. Everybody. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Okay. Uh, let me go to James, who has a hydrogen peroxide question. Hi, James. Hi, Dr. Joe. I have a question for you uh, with regards to uh, mouthwash, hydrogen peroxide, and periodontal disease. Now, um, my wife um, suggested that I, I rinse with hydrogen peroxide. And it's done wonders with, uh, with reducing uh, gum bleeding. But on the other hand, when I spoke to my dentist about it, he said, no, uh, limit uh, the, the amount of mouthwash uh, with regards to hydrogen peroxide because it's, it's carcinogenic. Now, when I've <clears> No, well, no, I, I don't know where that comes from. Hydrogen peroxide is not carcinogenic. Hydrogen peroxide can irritate tissues. Uh, it's a strong oxidizing agent, and uh, so it, it does release oxygen. And uh, I, I think maybe what he may be thinking is that oxygen-free radicals can do harm. But hydrogen peroxide is not regarded as a, as a carcinogen. On the other hand, you don't want to overdo this because it is a strong oxidizing agent and, and can damage uh, tissues. But uh, dentists, of course, know all about hydrogen peroxide because it is what they use uh, as a tooth whitening agent. The stuff that they, you know, they pack around your teeth uh, when they want to whiten them, what that does is release hydrogen peroxide because hydrogen peroxide is a bleaching agent. Okay. Well, because what I do is I use it and I dilute it, but uh, I, I just wanted to share that that uh, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, gum bleeding, uh, it's done absolute wonders. And uh, would you would you suggest maybe a couple of times a week? 
I, I don't know. This this okay. is something that that you know you need the expert opinion on. Okay. But all I all I can tell you is is that that there's no evidence that hydrogen peroxide is carcinogenic. Thank you very much. Okay. Hi. All right. Uh, uh, let me see who we have here. Is that Aaron? Yes, sir. Hi, yes. Dr. Joe. Yes, Aaron. Uh, my question is about organic produce. Uh, I'm curious to know if it's if it's if it's uh, an area that you focus yourself personally. If you if you try to as much as possible purchase. Organic I, do, I don't. I don't. If I go to the store and I see that the organic is roughly the same price as the conventional, I'll, I'll buy the organic. But I certainly don't go out of my way to do that. I don't think that there's huge amounts of, of, of benefits, certainly not in terms of health or in terms of nutrition. Where the benefits may lie is in the environmental aspects. Uh, I think organic agriculture may be somewhat less uh, uh, less heavy on the you know environmental uh, uh, issues. But uh, certainly, uh, I don't go for the fact that you know no pesticide residues because in fact there are many pesticides that are allowed to be used on organic produce and they are no better and no worse than the pesticides that are, are used on conventional they're just a lot fewer of them because they have to be natural but for example copper sulfate is, is widely used in organic agriculture pyrethrins can be used uh, of course they're all safe they're all being passed by the pesticide management regulatory agency but they are no worse or better than others so no I do not go out of my way to look for organic produce but when when it is roughly the same price, um, which it often is not, then I will go for it. Okay, we've got to take a break here. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, let's go to the experts. I know that Dr. Gerald Riley, a dentist, listens to our show, and he's got a comment about sugar. So let's go to Dr. Riley. Hi. Hi, Dr. Schwartz. How are you? Good, good. So, dentist well, and sugar, let's hear it. Well, a couple of things. Uh, the first thing is that uh, the uh, um, decay process begins as soon as the pH of your mouth drops below 5.5. Normally, it should be around 7 or neutral. So, when you have some of these sugary drinks, like, for instance, uh, Pepsi or Coca-Cola, they're about 2, 2.5. Uh, the pH drops rather quickly. Uh, and it'll depend a lot on your saliva, the texture of your saliva, the quantity of your saliva, how quickly the um, pH can be restored. So to answer the question uh, before what the gentleman said about brushing your teeth immediately after, if the pH is very low, uh, some have postulated that this would actually cause some uh, erosion uh, on your enamel uh, with time. So it's often suggested simply have some water before. If you had a sugary snack or a sugary beverage, uh, some water will neutralize the pH, and then you're free to, um, to brush uh, if you wish. Or xylitol has also been very beneficial. So the xylitol is the alcohol sugar that you'll find in gums like Trident, for instance. It's been shown that if you chew uh, 5 to 10 minutes, that will also restore the pH back to neutral. What do you say about the hydrogen peroxide business that came up? Uh, that's a that's a really good uh, um, question. You're absolutely right about the bleaching because any bleaching that is done is uh, no matter what the technique used, there is all hydrogen peroxide or hydrogen uh, or carbamide peroxide. Pardon me. So the carbamide is just more stable, and you can uh, usually bring it to bed and uh, have it with your night guard, and that'll be it. The, um, the bleaching was actually 
found accidentally uh, by Dr. Haywood at the time, who uh, was uh, trying to treat gum disease with peroxide and found that the teeth were bleaching with it. Uh, and I think the free radical um, argument that you gave is, is, is something that has been uh, um, proposed by, by some researchers. There were at times... Uh, peroxide mouthwashes in the States, we don't have them here in Canada, so the Canadian Dental Association doesn't really recognize them. But I would imagine that gentleman, if he, you know, if he does it and is very careful uh, and has a low uh, percentage or concentration of peroxide, it might be okay uh, occasionally, but he's much better off flossing and brushing. <laughs> Good. Now you know. Uh, let's let's move on to the fluoride business because oh, you know. God. I mean that this this rears its head you oh, know so often I, and and I mean we've we've talked about this this study about um, lowering of IQ when pregnant yeah. women use fluoride and uh, now it turns out that you know there's some controversy about the study itself yeah. because it seems that uh, you know one of the authors may have had some vested interest in in this yes and also i think you know nobody took the uh, the the trouble of testing the iq of the children before the study uh it was concentrated only on boys and so on and so forth listen i've i've always told patients look you know it, Somewhere along the line, there's a paradox. If, if we didn't believe in what it did, if you think about it, dentists are actively putting themselves out of business by reducing tooth decay. If you want to be really you know, <laughs> funny about it, right? But, I mean, we've seen it. Uh, Montreal and, and Quebec actually has the lowest rate of fluoridation in North America, and we have some of the highest rate of decay in our children. So, and now, I mean, we're down to about one part per million is necessary. And as you know, there's some places that naturally have two, three, four, five, six parts per million easily. Oh, yeah. And, the, and that's and where you more. see fluorosis, right? When you, yes. when you have, yeah. Well, that's how it was discovered, yeah. right? I mean, they, they, they were able to find some of these places. They found that the tooth was discovered, but there was no decay at all, even though they consumed uh, either, you know, some cane sugar or some of these other products, you know. Yeah, I did. that study has been, uh, I'm eager to see what's going to happen with that because I have a funny feeling it's just going to be uh, uh, torn apart. And as you know, you can publish whatever you want, but it doesn't mean it's actually critically yeah, well yeah. done, you know. And I th they've asked for the raw data, but uh, this, and it actually what's really strange is it's a psychologist, a neuropsychologist, who, who published this thing, and that's kind of bizarre. I mean, that's, it know, is, and what is also bizarre is that they claim that the, they don't own the data. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> the data should be able to be found and released to whoever yeah. owns it. Yeah. So anyway, I'm very, very skeptical of that. Okay, one more thorny issue, of course, is the amalgam business. Well, right. I'll tell you. So amalgam is, is interesting. It's a material that uh, I still have some in my mouth. They've been around for 40 years. Uh, it's been studies. That I think the last thing I heard is about over 10,000 papers that have been published on amalgam. Um you know, we, we know that uh, the mercury is set in, in the amalgam. Uh, there's about 25 nanograms that are evaporated when you chew with a mouthful of amalgams, which is probably what people will have in, in my generation. I'm, I'm I know, and I've actually made the calculation that, that uh, if mercury were coming out of there at, at a greater rate, the, the filling itself would be destroyed and would be falling out. It couldn't possibly last 40 years. Absolutely, yeah. and that, that's my argument as well. You know, And it's uh, one of the biggest things I think today is, so for instance, the young generation, you know, the government of Quebec, for instance, uh, does not pay for us to do a, a composite filling on a, on a permanent tooth 
uh, on a six-year-old child, for instance, which is ridiculous because because of the adhesion and the bonding that we can get with the composite resin, we can we can cut a cavity that's much much more conservative. Um, just to re- just remove the little bit of decay and then fill it in with a liquid uh, composite. Whereas in an amalgam, when I studied, you had to remove sometimes, you know, three, four, five times the amount of yeah, enamel yeah. just to make it hold because it holds mechanically. It doesn't hold by bonding at all. Well, anyway, I think eventually this amalgam issue will disappear because uh, the composites are, are becoming very good. And our kids have no cavities. I mean, I'm yeah. looking around. If we have, you know, we have so many patients on our practices that are 25 and 30 years old that have never been exposed to fluoride in the water here in Montreal or in Laval, uh, and they have no decay because, you know, they come and see uh, the dentist and the hygienist twice a year. They floss and brush, and yeah. uh, they, you know, parents have been very careful about how they taking care of it. You know, and so. Uh, Decay around these parts, anyways, is, is certainly reduced uh, considerably. And you saw, and I don't know if you saw the article in the Gazette, but uh, Calgary dentists have seen yes. an explosion in decay after, yes, after uh, they uh, took yes. fluoride out. Ab- absolutely, absolutely. Mm. So, yeah, let's stick to the science, right, and not the oh. alarmist uh, dogma that is out there. But unfortunately, that's what causes the sensationalist headlines. You know, yep. that, that's, uh, that's what the media, unfortunately, concentrates on. But... Uh, we will just uh, stick to the science and and uh, the science of those you know the white fillings the composites is is very interesting and yeah. certainly it's getting better and well, you know the first ones would basically uh, last a few years but now they last uh, as almost as long as amalgam oh i have patients yes and and of course again as i said you can do very conservative work we're on our yeah. seventh or eighth generation of bonding uh, resins now and i mean there's less sensitivity there used to be incredible amount of pain after we did them on the molars it was never a problem on the front teeth it's where you're chewing that it was a problem, mm-hmm. and you'd get uh, gaps in, in the bonding and so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, thanks for clarifying that. Pleasure, Dr. Joe. Okay, thanks a lot. And uh, that brings us to the end. We have once again run out of time. Uh, we will be back with you same time, same station next week. And until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>